But I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth, plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath, and humankind, having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and obviously I've been balls deep lately in my extinction-level event mini-series where I shoot the bowl about comic book crossovers for which I must confess a certain weakness. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that my entire podcast is really supposed to be a celebration of comic books. But I gotta tell you folks, I've never really been big on the crossover event type of story. Generally, they've always been sort of a turnoff for me, and today we'll be talking about a story that could be a factor in kind of why that is, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we talk too much about today's story, I should probably think about introducing this week's guest. Right? Seems logical. This story demands a certain amount of objectivity, intellectual refinement. I didn't want to turn this into a big rant about fuck this, fuck that, fuck those especially, and all that kind of juvenile stuff. Nope. 
because this episode needed to be, above all, respectable, I decided to bring in one specific guest. Now, I wouldn't say this next part about just anybody, because it isn't true of just anybody, but this guy, and I mean my guest today, well, he's somebody that I consider to be a contemporary. His shows and mine started at just about the same time, give or take a couple of weeks. So there's a bond there, irrespective of how good his shows are. And they are good. I mean, I've played this guy's promos often enough. And so, and guys, that was not a suggestion. If you're not listening to the Quarter Bin podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age, or the Short Box Showcase... You can go to hell. You can go to hell and you can die. And so it is with the most solemn and reverential spirit of friendship and harmony that I welcome back to the show. For the first time since the last time that he was here, Professor Allen, how are you, sir? Life up here in the Ivory Tower is quite fine, thank you very much. Well, I figure of all people, you'd be uh, most ideally placed to tell us what that life is like, so... But honestly, man, thank you very much for joining. It's, number one, it's been a long time since you've been on the show. But number two, I always like having you around specifically because of the fact that you don't get swept away in kind of petty, immature nonsense. And that's kind of the tone that I'm shooting for today. So I really, <laughs> really couldn't have asked for a better a better guest. Well, as, as listeners of your shows know, based on when you record and when you release episodes... Mm-hmm. You know, I have no idea when the last time we spoke was. Episode 50. Well, I mean, but when this is released, we may be speaking the week the week uh, the week before, the week after, the week. It's very confusing. Oh, well, I I'm sure you I mean, you you don't actually record in order. I know you record well in advance. <laughs> oh, if I could record in order, that would be awesome. But um, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, this episode that we're recording right now is scheduled for release July the 25th, 2015. Now, anything can happen between now and then, so who the hell knows. But the way that it is right now, this is scheduled to be episode 105. Episodes 103 and 104 have yet to be recorded. And episode 100, I hear, was awesome. Yes, it truly was. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's uh, sort of the peek behind uh, the curtain a little bit. So, and th- well, th- thank you for inviting me. And thank you for the kind words. Always appreciate it. Always glad to be here, punching reality. Yeah, well, and I, I got to tell you, the the shows that that you're on, I hate to draw a, a parallel here, but the the shows that you're on seem to have the most feedback I've noticed. So you can read into that anything you like but i gotta tell you man i really enjoyed your identity crisis episode of the short box showcase i mean oh okay thanks oh yeah yeah i and don't get me wrong i mean it's not because i'm a huge fan of that story and for obvious reasons i mean it's it's good it's well constructed and take this the way i mean it you know in a manner of speaking it's tastefully done i understand but as you're probably sick to death of hearing by now it was also kind of a portent of things to come, and usually by yes. writers and artists that didn't understand what made that story work. They just took, I guess, what they thought were the raw ingredients, tossed it into a blender, hit high, and uh, maybe dismembered a couple of people along the way and said, hey, this is just like Identity <laughs> Crisis. And so yeah. it's this weird thing that you have a love-hate relationship for that it's good on a technical level, but what it led to, yeah, you know? 
Yeah, I agree. I, I totally understand that. Well, anyway, I just I couldn't let it go. I, I, the reason I'm mentioning it now, I'm being kind of a pain in the neck about it, is because I truly don't remember sending in feedback for that episode. I may have, but I don't think so. <laughs> so this counts. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know what? I don't know. I mean, it. I'd like to think that you're going to at least appreciate that you got something out of it. Maybe Emily will too. We'll find out. You know, if I get a, a, an email from her threatening, you know, life and limb because she didn't get a specific mention in all of this, well, I'll know I at least uh, touched a nerve. So something to be said for that. But anyway, to business, Professor Allen and I are here to talk about Armageddon 2001. And as I said before, this storyline could be why I wasn't real big on the ultra huge mega crossover events back when I was a kid. But I'll come back to that later. For right now, the basic pitch of this story is actually pretty straightforward. It all begins in Armageddon 2001, number one wherein we discover a superhero eventually goes rogue, adopts the alias Monarch, and at some point in the future, fights and kills all the other superheroes, after which he establishes this kind of strange, super-powered, totalitarian monarchy. Hence the name Monarch. Anyway, so you got Rave Rider. He's a time traveler from the future. He's come back in time to 1991 to stop Monarch before he even starts. And if this sounds like an episode of Heroes to you guys, you're not alone. From there, we get DC's <laughs> summer crossover event of 1991, wherein Wave Rider drops in on basically, I think you could say, the entire DC universe at the time, and then tests each hero's future. Because the problem is that Monarch's covered his trail. Nobody knows for sure which superhero Monarch used to be. No one knows his true identity. All anybody knows is he used to be a superhero of some description. So, really, having no other choice, Wave Rider has to test every single hero to find the real killer. Now, some heroes are so big and important that they have multiple potential futures, so Wave Rider has to, re has to visit them repeatedly which is a nice, convenient way of providing annuals for all of the Superman and Batman titles at the time. And after all of that, we get the big thrilling conclusion in Armageddon 2001, number two, with a big surprise reveal of Monarch's true identity. And we'll be coming back to that little can of worms in just a moment. But for now, be advised that what Professor Allen and I decided to do was deal with, I guess you could say, the main meat of the story in this segment and then come back in the next segment just to kind of have a sort of lightning round about the tie-in annuals that I don't think really advanced the story so much as play with the Armageddon 2001 concept a little bit. So, anyway. On to summaries. For Armageddon 2001 number one, Justice League Europe annual number two, and Armageddon 2001 number two. So, first up, number one, Entitled Dark Time, in the year 2030, scientist Matthew Ryder struggles with the totalitarian oppression of his world's leadership under the dictator and former superhero, Monarch. Ryder, one of the very few in his world even privately opposed to Monarch's rule, finds small ways in which to research the superheroes of old, which by this point has become a long-forgotten concept. 
Ryder's curiosity into the subject is drawn mostly from a vague childhood memory of being rescued out of a pile of rubble by a superhero that he couldn't quite put a face to or a name on. It's revealed through flashbacks how Monarch, at one point a superhero himself, had murdered all of the other superheroes single-handedly and installed himself as Earth's sole worldwide ruler, which occurred 29 years previously in the year 2001. Ryder's obsessions slowly alienate him from both his family and his scientific colleagues in governmental research. He's brought into further conflict with his daughter, who's a member of the Peacemaker Police Force, when a situation forces him to dive through a hail of police bullets to save the life of a little girl. The Peacemakers had been shooting at an old man who'd been deemed a terrorist for selling old floppy disks, for those who remember those, featuring information about superheroes, which, in the context of the culture and society in which we're talking about, is got to be considered pretty much the ultimate contraband. When pressure is applied to his department to increase research on quantum mechanics for the purposes of time travel, Ryder immediately volunteers as a test subject. He believes time travel to be the only possible way to stop the nearly omnipotent monarch before he begins his career as a supervillain. Although he fails to gain admission to the project due to his record as a possible subversive, he vandalizes a public statue of Monarch to call down the ruler himself. After a discussion in which he accuses Monarch's experiments thus far of having failed due to the breeding out of such traits as individual human survival instinct, creativity, and ingenuity, Monarch agrees to use him, which is to say Matthew Ryder, as a subject for the experiment. Although a quick investigation finds much subversive material on Ryder's computer, Monarch also believes that his love for his own family will prevent Ryder from attempting to alter the time stream. Which seems a bit like a sucker's bet in some ways, but this is somewhat verified by a machine test that Ryder subtly tricks as he hates what his family has become, but wants to believe that in another timeline, he might have actually loved them. After finally being thrust into the time stream, Matthew Ryder becomes imbued with its powers, becomes one with the time stream, and becomes Wave Rider, using his newfound abilities to travel through time and determine for himself which of Earth's heroes will eventually become Monarch, and the hopes that he might prevent his own terrible future from ever coming to pass. Justice League Europe, Annual Number 2, entitled too much time. Wave Rider meets with Justice League Europe and tests Captain Adam's future. The issue ends with Rave Rider, Wave Rider saying, Contact. Armageddon 2001, number two, entitled Conclusion. Immediately following what took place in the Justice League Europe annual, Wave Rider now investigates Captain Adam's future to determine if he's going to become Monarch. In that future, he sees that Nathaniel Adam is retired from active duty as Captain Adam due to an accident that led to some instability with his powers. However, as Nathaniel hob- uh, hobbles around New York City, he sees that his children and g- grandchildren have been gunned down by a street gang and not only are the police not prosecuting the ones responsible for their deaths, but also the bodies of the deceased are simply treated like garbage. 
Angry at the lack of justice, Nathaniel becomes Captain Adam to avenge their deaths by killing the gang members responsible for it, and then turns his entire anger onto the whole city, devastating it with his quantum powers before he reverts back to Nathaniel Adam, weakened and spent. However, it's during Wave Rider's investigation of Captain Adam's, Adam's future that Monarch shows up, having followed his time-traveling test subject to, pres to the present time where he discovers Wave Rider's plans to stop his existence. The heroes present with Rave Wave Rider... God, that is such a hard name to say sometimes. The heroes <laughs> present with w Wave Rider protect him from Monarch and briefly confront him before he, that is to say Monarch, disappears. Wave Rider fears that his voyeurism into the, into the hero's future may be the cause for Monarch's existence. Meanwhile, Monarch seeks out Hank Hall and Don Granger, having followed them, or sorry, having them transform into Hawk and Dove before knocking them out and transporting them to a secret hideout where he will eventually assemble his weapon for destroying all superheroes, including Superman. Eventually, Monarch kills Don Granger before Hank Hall's eyes, provoking him to attack and kill Monarch. As he does, he finds out that the Monarch is a future version of himself, and that he's come from the future to make sure that his past self fulfills the very role that he's fated to be. Are you dizzy yet? Soon, the heroes are called to evacuate the citizens of Metropolis as Monarch plans to show up with a devastating weapon that he plans to activate within the heart of the city. As the heroes succeed largely in doing so, which is to say, stopping them, they wait for Monarch, Monarch's arrival to engage him in battle. Superman shatters Monarch's helmet, revealing him to be Hank Hall, alias Hawk as we just uh, talked about in the last section. As Monarch activates the weapon to destroy all the superheroes, Captain Adam notices that the weapon's energy doesn't seem to affect him and can be absorbed by him. Drawing the destructive power of the weapon's energy towards him, Captain Adam saves his fellow heroes as he and Monarch are transported out of the present time and into the prehistoric past. It's after all of this that someone notices a hand reaching out of a pile of rubble. Wave Rider reaches out to that hand and pulls out of the pile a young boy named Matthew Rider. It's then that Wave Rider realizes who the mysterious hero is from his childhood. The end. So, what did I think? Well, we can come back to that in just a few moments. For right now, <laughs> Professor, as the guest of honor, the man of the hour my podcasting vassal, and prince among men, I ask you to go first. What did you think of the story, sir? Well, I love time travel stories. Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for them. Even if, you know, you end up being your own grandfather or whatever it is. However those paradoxes work. As long as there's some consistency, I'm, I, can, I can buy any version of time travel. You know, the Star Trek time travel where there's one right path and if you know, we have to fix time, or if it's the back to the future version of time travel, or if it's this version of time travel. So I'm a sucker for that. And, and I kind of like mystery stories too. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the core, this is a, the, the concept, the overriding story of this is pretty great. Rogue superhero, I mean, the pitch, you know, you, you, 
you can buy that pitch. Mm-hmm. Rogue superhero who we know goes bad in the future. We have to stop that from happening. Okay, that's that's a that's a reasonable big enough event to qualify for you know uh, uh, running through all the annuals, mm-hmm. and it's big enough to qualify for the Trentus Magnus end of the universe series. <laughs> so I like I like the big idea, and. Throughout the annuals, there becomes a bit of a repetitive nature to it. I agree. Wave Rider touches Hero X, sees a potential future. No, it's not them. Wave Rider touches Hero Y. No, it's not them. They see it. So, you know, that aspect, so the sort of the mystery aspect of it uh, got got repetitive. But the, but I like, and I, I, I like the ending. I like, you know, Wave Rider pulling himself out of the rubble. That's a great time travel trick, you know, a mm-hmm. Twilight Zone type of ending. I like that. I'm not so sure about sending Captain Adam back to prehistoric times. I'm not sure how I feel about that one. Um, I've got a theory on that, and it kind of ties in with uh, the pink elephant in the room when it comes to Armageddon 2001, if you'd care to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, to start with, for those of you who don't know... Hank Hall was not originally uh, set up to be Monarch's true identity. In fact, it was originally supposed to be, and I think after Infinite Crisis became Captain Adam. And the idea was that there were little clues and hints to all of that uh, that were set up in Armageddon 2001, number one. And if you're paying attention specifically to Monarch's range of powers... It, I, I don't want to say it's bluntly obvious, but there are very few characters in the DC universe at the time that had those types of abilities, and Captain Adam is one of them. And so, it, yeah, but that's a trick that in, interrupt you. But that's a trick with writing a mystery. You know, you, the there is a balance between leaving enough clues so people can figure it out and not feel cheated with you know, balancing that with spoon-feeding the answer. And I think these guys are used to writing superhero stories. They're not used to writing mystery stories. And, uh, you know, the sort of where you're going with the story is people figured it out, and DC panicked. Correct. And so what they decided to do... Um, and this sort of betrays what I think their original intention was for this series. They weren't telling a time travel story. As you say, they were telling a mystery, a whodunit. Mm-hmm. Right. And the the revelation of Monarch's true identity, that was meant to be sort of the franchise of all of this. So important was that story point to them that Monarch's true identity at the 11th hour was changed from Captain Adam to Hank Hall, because honestly, who among us saw that coming? But when you think about it, Hank Hall, I don't think Hawk and Dove was selling in huge numbers at the time, and so he could be a good sacrificial lamb to preserve the sort of shock and surprise of Monarch's, the revelation of Monarch's true identity, without really affecting any of 
what you might say are the franchise characters of the DC right. universe, the ones that, let's face it, major licensing deals hinge on. Hank Hall <laughs> is not that guy. And for that matter, neither was Captain Adam, but, um, well, in, in any case. So, nevertheless, uh, you could change a whole lot of Armageddon 2001, number two, before you go to press, you know, you have to, you, you're kind of stuck in some ways, at least with most of the art that you've created, but you can change the story around which that art takes place, and you can salvage the issue. And in and of itself, I actually happen to think Armageddon 2001, number two, is a good comic book. But the subsequent issues of Justice League Europe, number 31, they don't immediately show Captain Atom, and honestly, you have people who are reacting to what at the very least, is Captain Adam's disappearance, if not his death. And specifically, oh, right. um, the, the moment that sort of stands out to me, and I, I'm not trying to get too far off topic, I'm just trying to you know, elaborate why I think this. If you read um, Armageddon, not Armageddon, I'm sorry, Justice League uh, Europe number 31, um, it starts with, it, it's a dream sequence of Captain Adam. He swoops in. Uh, he's clearly evil as the day is long. Try and basically commits an act of murder, and whoops, it's just a dream after all. And what you have is people who are reacting either to, depending on you know how you write the dialogue, because the art is already there. They're clearly upset, so they're so the dialogue is them either reacting to the death of Captain Adam, or they're reacting to Captain Adam being basically Darth Vader, you know. <laughs> right. And so that I think is why. Captain Adam had to – something had to happen so that he's temporarily taken out of commission just so they don't have to rebuild an entire comic book issue. That's what I think. Interesting. That makes sense because, you know, the way that the comic books are produced, you know, the lag time, the lead time, mm -hmm. all of that, this must have been a scramble. Yeah. And that actually kind of leads into something that I I, I don't want to make, you know, this entire show – about you know this revelation and the change because there is a story here, and whatever ended up happening or not happening with the the resolution to it, it is a good story. But on that basis, right. how do you feel about it? You know, I mean, is this was it or should it have been so important to them to preserve the shocking revelation of Monarch's true identity, or? Should they have just, you know, bitten the bullet and said, okay, you guys, you, you figured it out, you guessed it, good for you, now on with the story, you know? Uh, which of those, it, looking back at it, do you think they should have done? I, th I think in general, you stick, I th think you stick with the original story, just because that's what was plotted out, thought through, the implications were thought through. As you said, when they make this change on the fly that does mean that there are downstream consequences that they have to account for. Right. You know, to some extent, it's all, almost in the same way where you make an offhand comment that in the new 52, there have already been this many Robins. Where you make an offhanded comment like that for whatever, to answer one particular question, but it just leads to many more questions. Well, and I agree, and... Look, when this, when these comics were coming out and I was buying them, I was, I, I was ten years old, and I would say that this was the first major DC Comics crossover that took place during my collecting lifetime. This was sure. numero uno, sure. and 
I was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a major expert about the DC universe. And so I wasn't completely sure who Monarch might have been. Now, I had a passing... I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I had it all figured out, but I had a passing familiarity (laughs) with uh, Justice League Europe, and I knew that there was a character in there, Captain Adam, and he had powers that were like this, or at least similar, maybe, to some of what we see Monarch do. And my... And I'd actually sort of eliminated him as a um, as a, a suspect, primarily because I didn't understand Captain Adam's place in the DC universe. And it, it, it really comes... I don't, I don't want to you know, go chasing rabbits on this, except to say it came from a misunderstanding of what Watchmen was. And so, uh, because of that, I figured, well, we know for sure it's not going to be him, but at every step of the way, it felt like I was, in, <laughs> I, right. I was seeing conclusive evidence that it might have been him. And then, out of nowhere, it's fucking Hank Hall, this guy that I'd never heard of. He doesn't seem to have powers along the lines of what we saw from Monarch. Just on and on and on. And I did not know the -the behind-the-scenes drama at the time. It just kind of felt like it was a little bit of a cop-out. You know, it felt like... I I don't think I would have put it in quite these words when I was a kid. But it felt like they had promised X and were delivering Y. Right. Now, the one thing that I can say about that, and again, not to go too far off topic, was the one thing, though, that I can say about all of this as far as like a redeeming element of this story was the myriad tie-in annuals. And it gave me an appreciation for a, a certain type of superhero story. We'll talk about that in the next segment. But what I'm going to say is that, you know, just by and large, this is a good story. I really... Um, I really enjoy, you know, the art. I think the art in issue number two, perhaps for obvious reasons, is a bit rushed. But I do like this sort of uh, dystopic sort of uh, superhero apocalypse that the Armageddon 2001 universe was. And then the idea, this kind of heroes style, like the TV show, heroes style story where someone has to come back in time to prevent a horrifying future from taking place. I mean... That's basically any season of Heroes that I ever saw. <laughs> and uh, Pretty standard sci-fi yeah, fare. I agree. And I don't know. It's just all around, you know, this... I, I think Armageddon 2001, number one, as far as, you know, storytelling, universe building, God knows the art is just awesome. This, to me, is the uh, like of the sort of two issues and one page of story that we've dealt with here... <laughs> I just, to me, this it's just kind of quintessential Dan Jurgens, and yeah. I just, I don't know. It's just that, like, I, I've just, I've been a fan of this my entire life. There's something about the art in this, uh, in this uh, first issue of Armageddon 2001, and God knows the story. There's just something about it that it just rings, I don't know, epic to me. It's just yeah. it's so big. And on, and on. on terms of the first the first issue of the the mini series itself you know i never really thought of for you know, whatever reason i never really thought of archie goodwin as a top tier writer mm-hmm. but i really liked the way that he got that story going in that in in issue one of of armageddon 2001 mm-hmm. um i thought he just laid i thought laid the groundwork uh you know really well well, maybe too well. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Archie Goodwin, uh, my impression of him, I'm mostly familiar with the name as an editor. And so right. I've read 
a few of his stories. But what I find is that he's a very, he's a sort of, uh, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but he is a sort of a workman uh, right. type of writer, yeah. you know, very meat mm-hmm. and potatoes. Right. And but I, I was gonna say, but I thought I mean I that was sort of my my impression as well. But I thought he he sort of took this epic scale and did a pretty good job. Get like 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 you said, maybe he left too many clues too obvious. That a more subtle writer, you know, may have been able to disguise a little better. Yeah, well, and honestly, I I kind of have to wonder. You know, people want to immediately blame the writer, and I, I, honestly, I'm kind of there myself. But when you think about it, a lot of this comes down to art, and there is a very mm-hmm. um, ambiguous way that you can portray superpowers and mass devastation and the causes of it that honestly I think that a certain amount of, and I love Dan Jurgens to pieces but I think a certain amount of that I think some of that blame really does belong to him not to criticize or bash on him or anything like that but just to be kind of fair about things that you know whatever blame there is to be had here and honestly I'm, I don't even think that we should even call it blame because as you say <laughs> you know the 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 writer's mandate is to is to lay out certain clues and maybe a couple of red herrings for for fun and games, but lay, but basically give the reader enough information that they can develop a working hypothesis as to the real killer's true identity, and then see how that plays out in the final resolution. And I just it kind of feels like maybe there was a little bit of unnecessary panic in that, but whatever. Monday morning quarterback, I guess. The point is this <laughs> is one of the it's, it, I've got a sort of love-hate relationship with this story is what I'm saying. <laughs> Understandable. I thought, again, I, th- I thought the world building also in the first issue especially, you know, this sort of how this t- this somewhat benevolent totalitarianism, if, if, if there is such a thing, you know, how it was operating, the people's reactions, uh, you know, citizens. We had a lot of, you know, citizen man on the street conversations that we were seeing. Yeah. And I like that. So, you know, I, 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 th- I think the story could have been great. It's really good. Could have been great. Yeah, I agree with that. I very much agree with that. And, um, but the, when, when we start getting into the second issue, Armageddon 2001, number two, <laughs> obviously from a technical standpoint, you know, like the writing, it is what it is at this point. It does have to deliver certain payoffs, and it's almost... I don't want to say paint by numbers, but there is a, a an obligatory aspect to it. But the art starting at about the time that Monarch comes into the present day, it becomes very shaky, very uneven, yeah. because this was probably sort of bashed uh, together and just kind of hurried through. But... That's. Do we have any idea? I'm just curious about that. Do we have any idea how much of issue two was redrawn or rewritten? Or I, I almost get the feeling that that you can almost sense that change partway through it somehow. Uh, um, but but I that's pure hypothesis. I, I don't know if that's if if you know anything more or have a have a sense for that. Um, this is a, a uh, this is just a complete guess on my part. What I think is. Up to a point, what we're seeing is actually the original issue, too. That's what I think, And yeah. then there comes a moment after 
Captain Adam has his big meltdown in uh, the city, and then he just sort of shorts out and goes back to being uh, Nathaniel Adam. Right. That is the end of the original issue, too. Starting from the page after that, that's when we start getting into a little bit of fiddlefuckery as to what was going on behind the scenes. Beyond that point, I at some somewhere along the way, that I think is is when it happened, and I could be wrong. It may have even been a few pages even after that, but that's just what that that's what I think. Yeah, that that seems reasonable. Just curious. So, just a, a theory on my part, but but there's a you know there's a saying you know, I I I use it a lot in doing you know reviews of you know or thinking about whether it's comic book stories or, or movies or novels. And that is that endings are hard. Mm-hmm. You know, endings are hard. And we've had that experience of, you know, we all have, of the movie that is great up to the last 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the novel we love up to the last few chapters, the comic book story we like up to the last issue. That's some, somewhere along the line, it's rushed, it's shortened, there's something... You know, but ending a story well, especially a mystery story, I, I think is 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 pretty hard. But I'm 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 curious about you. You know your your tastes, whether or how important is the ending to a story? Because this varies from person to person. For me, an, an ending is almost everything. It has to end well. If if, if a movie ends poorly, I'm disappointed. No matter. Even if 80% of it was good, if the last 20% is bad, it sours the whole thing. What but I, I've, I've heard, but but you know, as I say, but I've heard people say, you know, just the opposite that a bad ending they can take that in context. Well, again, whether it's a novel or a or a comic story or something like this, but to me, and if you don't stick the landing, there's some level of failure there. Well, the way I see it, um, in comics. You, it, this is one of those things where you kind of need to just it's it look it's okay to appreciate or resent or whatever the ending of a particular story as long as you realize that we're never going to truly get the ending of the story what we have is a, a conclusion to a concept but at least a, at least for a comic book there's got to be a next a, a next issue next month and so the ending has got to not only serve us the story at hand, it's also got to basically leave open um, a uh, an opportunity, I guess, for st- the story to continue next month. Maybe a different story, but the characters have got to be there, and the universe has got to be fundamentally unscathed. And so, let's face it, in a, it, it, if we look at this, I don't want to use the word realistic, but I guess maybe from a pragmatic point of view, <laughs> Okay. Monarch's victory is completely inevitable. He's going to kill all of the superheroes. He's going to set up, take over everything, and then he's going to run the show from now on. Well, hasta la vista, DC Universe. So any conclusion that you <laughs> right. come to, come up with for that story is – I don't want to say it's going gonna, it's gonna to seem like a cop-out, but that's the main thing that I, that I don't want from a story. I don't want it to be a cop-out. You know, I'm not saying that you have to have ramifications to the story that last for years and years and years, and we're just constantly beating the same drum to death. A mistake I think the Batman titles made following the events of Nightfall, they just wouldn't friggin' let it go after a while. Yeah, we get it. Life sucked. Let's get some new stuff going here, guys. (laughs) But what I guess what I'm driving at here is that this introduced 
s- several really new concepts into the DC universe, not least of which is Ra- Wave Rider, who was a, I don't want to say a pivotal character, but definitely an important one in the Superman titles, starting from the early yes. 90s and then just going forward. Um, but honestly... Well, was, he con- was he connected to the Linear Men? Or was those two separate? Were those two... I mean, eventually did those come together? Oh, yeah. Yeah, eventually he did yeah. join. And Yeah, I, 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 again, that time travel stuff, setting the timelines correct. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of story in general. I am as well. And when it's done well, as most of Armageddon 2001 is, it's the thing to remember about Armageddon uh, 2001, when all said and done, is that it's not just a story it is that don't get me wrong but it's not just a story it was a concept that very creative people at dc were allowed to play with for an entire summer you know what does what what does the future hold or at least what does it potentially hold for hal jordan or the flash or superman or whoever and in cases maybe those are happy endings in other cases less so but I'm a, as much as you're a fan of you know time travel stories, and again, I don't want to go too far outside of you know what we're supposed to talk about here. I want to save something for the next segment, but I really dig that uh, that type of story being done with iconic superheroes. And honestly, for whatever weaknesses Armageddon 2001 as a finished product may have, it gave me boatloads of that stuff, and it feels very hypocritical to complain about it. Because of the fact that I got so much awesome stuff out of this, including, I think, a very unsung but very important moment in comics history starts right here in those tie-ins. We're going to talk about that in the next segment, but I just want you guys to be thinking about it now. But I guess to give you a less rambly answer to your question, I don't even like using the word ending in these types of stories because, like I say, the story doesn't end. How is the conclusion? And what we got was a, a surprise reveal of Monarch. No, it was not necessarily intellectually honest with that which had come before. What can you do? There's no, I can't change it. You can't. Nobody can. Right. And then I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll say that in, you know in picking these up again to read them you know for this for this recording it had been I don't think it had been quite well may have been since 1991 it had been a while since I've read it, and what I've heard for the last quarter century is about the change, that that had become the part of Armageddon, like the only thing that mattered of Armageddon 2001. And, you know, hearing that for 20-plus years, it had gotten into my head that this was not one of the good uh, crossovers. Mm -hmm. So when I read it, you know, for this, I was pleasantly surprised. I was too. You no, know, very, very pleasantly surprised. It, it was much better than what I had let that one moment. You know, I, th- I think that that one moment, the change, because it says so much about fandom, about editorial. I mean, it it has bigger implications, and I think it, it's clouded the story itself. I agree, and I and and to tell you the truth, I think that's a real shame because. You know, the change, yes, it's there, but when you think about it, all that really does is negate a couple of panels and right. what looks like offhand, let's let's have a look, let's find out how many, something like 20 comics or less 
a handful of panels were contradicted by uh, the revelation of Armageddon 2001, number two. The, I'll take those odds. You know, um, you know, it's a good concept. It's a good story. And at the very, at the very minimum, one of the things that I, I got to tell you, I had never connected the dots on with this story. Did you ever read that, uh, that series from Boom Studios called uh, Irredeemable? Uh, no, but I've, I've certainly familiar with it. I, I actually have not read any. Well, to me, that story is, it, it's this basic concept taken to the nines. Right, and, right. You know, I, and again, speaking of you know endings there, well, you know what? Maybe someday you and I can talk about uh, Irredeemable. Um, but uh, you know, the ending there, I, I would love to get your your opinion on because it is an ending. But you know, it's just I was reminded of Irredeemable when I was rereading this. But I was also just reminded of, I guess, why it is that I love this era of comics when imagination mm, can take right. you so freaking far, and just how creative. Dan Jurgens. I, I mean, I, I don't know if he was the key creative contributor for this, but somebody with a serious friggin' talent dreamed right. up this storyline and thought, wouldn't it be awesome if? And end of the day, I refuse to criticize that. So Yeah. I had a question. You, you, you brought up uh, the Watchmen comparison. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's why, to me, Captain Adam is such a great would have been such a great answer. It would have been a great solution, sort of in in light of the Doctor Manhattan. Uh, you know, I'm curious, just if you sort of what 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 you were thinking when you when you made that that comparison. Well, uh, what happened was um, I was like I said, I was 10 years old um, in 1991 when this when this uh, storyline came out, and I thought there might have been a possibility that the uh, that the real killer was Captain Adam. And then what I realized, or at least thought, was that, well, no, that will, that really wouldn't work very well with Watchmen because I had a, just a complete misunderstanding of what Watchmen was because I'd never read it. I mean, honestly, I think that was, you know, for my little 10-year-old brain, I don't think I would have really <laughs> yes. gotten it. Or at least certainly not a whole lot of positive things from it. And so, whereas when I read it when I was 14 or however old, much different story. But we'll come back to that. So, um, but I knew that basically the uh, characters in uh, Watchmen were sort of, I didn't completely grasp the idea that they were analogs of the Charlton characters. I didn't really get that. Because, like I said, I mean, I was I was a stupid kid, and I had a misunderstanding of what that story was, <laughs> and so I thought that that really was Captain Adam in that story, okay. and that and there's not really time travel as such, but there is basically his own self awareness, Doctor Manhattan's own perceptions of time, basically would have implications on Captain Adam. That's how he sees time, too. He would know if he was frickin' monarch, and then if he was, it's one of those things that it would be generally known. And so I didn't understand, I guess, that the Watchmen universe is sort of an embellishment of the Charlton characters. It's not necessarily A is A. You can see where the inspiration is, but at the end of the day, I do think it's fair to call those basically original characters, considering how how little originality, if you think about it, really is in comics. Sure. As original as Shazam. Captain Marvel. Yeah, there you go. 
And um, anyway, so that's I, I, I didn't mean to confuse you on that. It's just like I said, I was confused when I was a kid and I didn't understand. But anyway, so there you go. That's funny. Yeah, but I think, but I think in 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 light of Watchmen, it would it it would have been more appropriate had they stuck it and and and, and had it been, you know, Captain Adam had they either had the courage to stick to their guns, or um, or had designed the story a little bit better. So the well, the uh, the, the idea I had when I was um, older and I was still kind of torqued off about the story. Because as a kid, like I said, I felt like I'd been kind of ripped off. You know, I was like, wow, yeah. all of this bullshit just for Hank fucking Hall, really? But um, I thought, well, wouldn't it have been kind of funny and sort of a nice little wink to the fans if the villain of the piece had actually ended up being Peter Cannon Thunderbolt? <laughs> and only because of the Watchmen factor, it makes absolutely no sense for the story at all. But I just thought that might have been just kind of a sort of clever way of uh, uh, of doing it, tying in with Watchmen, but not really. Maybe you could think right. of it as doing a mainstream <laughs> version of mainstream DC universe of Watchmen, but I don't know. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, I guess. So, um, now, do you have... Uh, now, is there anything else that you want to toss out there for the main meat of the story? No. Like I said, pleasantly surprised as by how strong taking it for what it is um, how strong the story was I agree yeah, this is the first time I would actually read it like beginning to end in at least 10 years maybe more but 10 years I, I feel pretty confident in that and you know what except for the obvious it really holds up so anyway I really enjoy that so right now though what uh, the good professor and I is uh, we are going to take a break and I'll be right back to talk about the various tie-ins and whatnot. Like I say, not in just, you know, super ultra detail or anything like that, more of a lightning round type of thing. But, uh, you know, we're going to just kind of shoot the bull about that. And uh, that's the next segment, though. See you in just a moment. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my 
discussion with uh, the good Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network about the Armageddon 2001 tie-ins. Now, in the previous segment, we talked about the main meat of the story. And uh, I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised by just how on the same page the professor and I were uh, as to the story. How things are going to shape up in this segment, I truly do not know. So, <laughs> well, the th- I mean, the you know, I read those those two issues of Armageddon 2001, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying there's a direct correlation between Monarch's rule and the Magnusosity <laughs> that we're living under now. <laughs> the th- this particular benevolent dictatorship. Let's just say I thought it best to agree with you. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. I will remember that when it comes time to dole out the rewards and the punishments. So, um, basically what uh, the professor and I have, um, because I'm a big blabbermouth, I have three comics. Really, though, the professor only chose uh, just one. And uh, so, uh, because of the fact that I ran my mouth basically nonstop in the last segment, um, and I ended up maybe uh, talking over... Uh, uh, Alan, just a little bit. I'm going to let him uh, take the lead on Justice League Europe Annual Number Two. So uh, go for it. However you want to handle it. Well, you've already covered the last page. Yes, I did. <laughs> Actually, what I liked about this one, in, in in terms of the the crossover annuals, is that this one is a perfect representation. I think of the Armageddon 2001 event in, in terms of these, of these, especially in these tie-ins. Because what you have in the Justice League Europe uh, issue, which I think has well over 50 pages of story, it's a, you know, good-sized, a good-sized annual, mm-hmm. is basically you're running through a series of Wave Rider touching this person. And we get five pages of the possible future. And then he's, no, I don't think it's them. Let me touch this next person in the room. Right. And and, and it is, first of all, it's a great mix of characters that I uh, I really I really appreciate. And you can see just just from the uh, uh, the cover of this one, it's got the demon. It's got the the three original legionnaires. It's got hex. It's got the elongated man. It's got just a Incredibly diverse, wacky cast. It's sort of what you expect from Justice League Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it is it metamorpho. It 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 is it is that crowd, and so you get you know every 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 few pages you get you get a, a little different look at these at these characters. What's going on? And the way they do it is that every time there is you know one of these one of these possible futures. Uh, they change the artist, so you do get that. That um, you know, you just get a, a little change of pace. E- each one of these different scenes is visually different, and there's some pretty funny stuff uh, throughout it, as you would, you know, suspect from the from the Justice League uh, Europe uh, Legion part is funny. The Ralph Dibney uh, sequence, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for Ralph. That's Ty Templeton art, mm-hmm. which, again, is a perfect mix of artist and, and character. Uh, there's just a lot of humorous uh, 
a lot of humorous uh, bits there. And, uh, you know, he he is, uh, as he said, he's just about to touch Captain Adam. And that's the, uh, I guess this was, uh, uh, you know, it, it ends with that. And I guess this is the annual that leads right into 2000 uh, to issue two. Right. Um, you know, but it, but it, 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 to me, it sort of symbolized the the whole run of these of these annuals, at least the handful that I've read. I agree. And the thing about it that actually really worked for me was was exactly the uh, the angle of there being uh, so many artists uh, contributing to this. It does. I'm a, I, I'm of the belief that the artist really does set the tone for for the comic or at least for the story and so by constantly changing up the you know the artist and having all of these different tones and things going that are that match at least ostensibly uh, are supposed to match you know the characters i mean kurt swan's in there at one point right and it i don't know why it just there's there's just a freaking honesty to that that just it that that plays for me and so I really, I, I, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought this was actually one of the standout issues, and not just because it's, it ends on you know such a foreboding note, you know. Right. Yeah, I think I think uh, Kurt Swan does the Legion section. Right. And again, there's just a nice mix of the, the and it's the original three Legionnaires. It's Cosmic Boy in his <clears throat> pink costume and Saturn Girl in her long pants and overskirt and you know it's so it's that era mm-hmm. of legion drawn by kurt swan i mean that's again that that's what you want there is a, l- a, a, a great selection of sort of classic art and classic story i agree and there's also there's there, there's a little bit of a giveaway on uh, page 47 again not to beat this thing to death right but there's a little bit of a giveaway on page 47 which is not the end of the issue where wave uh, wave rider reaches out to uh, uh, yes. touch Captain Adam, and then he gets rather conveniently disrupted, and then they move on to something else. Exactly. And at the time, when I... One touch! So close! Or so close to solving the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it just, I don't know, I mean, I, looking back at it, wow, that's... It, it has a different significance now, so... Um, anyway, that's that stuff, though. So, um, anyway, all around, I just really enjoy this issue, so uh, excellent choice, sir. And again, th- this one is just fun, like a JLE story should be. Agreed. <clears throat> Excuse me. I should have muted that. So, um, well, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Now, do you have anything else on that? Or... No. No? All right. Really enjoyed it. One of the best, actually. So, for mine, the first one that I had of the three that I've got, the first one is Batman Annual Number 15. Now... Partly it's because this is just a just a really good story. I liked this story. But it also sort of leads into one of the things that about the Armageddon 2001 concept, not so much the story, the concept that just works for me is that when you move away from the whole a hoopla of who is monarch and you know what's gonna you know what's gonna happen there? How is that all gonna you know shake out with the rest of the DC universe? Who's gonna win and all of that sort of fun stuff? All of these annuals um, 
they were basically sort of end of the story types of stories where you see at least possible endings for these characters. And I'm a big fan of that because if you're a fan of superhero fiction pretty much at all, you have got to have invested at least a little bit of imagination in how these stories might end. Because we have to acknowledge as we read these comics, we're perpetually in the middle. We will never live to see the end of these characters. And even the change that we get in most cases is completely superficial, you know? Right. The, uh, the, the illusion of change. Exactly. And, and to some extent, we don't like to make this comparison, mm-hmm. but these are our soap operas. You know what? The- ongoing, sto- ongoing stories that never end that keep you watching tomorrow or reading next month. I take no offense at that, but there's an entire world of comic book fans out there right now who are having meltdowns <laughs> over what you just said, sir. But I happen to think it's really freaking true. And so, you know, I, I cannot be the only one who thought that, you know what, the ending of that we saw for Superman in, the, well, the ending, it's not really an ending, it's more just, I guess, a shifting of gears, but the ending that Superman had in... DC 1 million, I find that so freaking easy to believe. You know, he's Mm -hmm. not going to die. And he's going to change. He's going to morph, transform. He's going to move on to the next level of consciousness. What he's not going to do is die. And in the case of Batman, this storyline in Batman Annual number 15 is not the way that Batman would end, I don't think. Um, But at the same time, it is an interesting future, at the very least, to think about. And as a little bit of historical trivia that I think people have forgotten about, guys, I was following Tim Drake's storyline obsessively at the time that these comics were coming out. And at the time that these comics were coming out, Tim had become Robin, which is to say he'd been given his stripes, he was anointed, he was given the costume and all that stuff. But we were at this weird sort of interstitial period in Tim Drake's history where he hadn't joined Batman as Robin. So there were no new Batman and Robin stories that were coming out, yet Tim was Robin. Right. So if we talk about the release order, this is the first Batman and Robin with Tim Drake story that ever saw the light of day. And I know this because I lived through it. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's a take I hadn't thought of. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's a, it's something I've noticed a lot of people have, have forgotten about. But this was a huge deal for me. Because I didn't really take Armageddon 2001 as literal gospel. This is what the future is going to be like. But at the same time, I did think it was, it was nevertheless important that Tim Drake is not going to meet Jason Todd's fate. He's still going to be Batman's partner in the future. And that meant something to me, you know? And moving on, apart from all of that, this is just a just a good, fun, sort of whodunit story. It's its own little mystery story in its own way. And very nearly was the end of the story for Batman. And so this is, like I say, I mean, is this the greatest Batman story that there's ever been written? Well, no, obviously not. I mean, I think that 
you know, for as good as the writing is, I never bet against Alan Grant. Jim Fern's <laughs> art right. is kind of a mess in in uh, this this story. I mean, I just don't dig his line style. Is what I'm saying. So, but anyway, it's a fun little story. Really dig it, and I think you know this is sort of maybe emblematic of all the other crossovers uh, and tie-ins and stuff. In that, even if the story itself isn't the greatest thing in the world, it nevertheless proves that there is so much mojo to this concept of Armageddon 2001 and the types of stories that can be told with it. And so, you know, on that basis alone, I refuse to criticize any of these annuals, but especially this one. <laughs> right. So, anyway, so I'm not trying to talk your ear off about it there, but obviously I'm kind of a fan. I remember the detective one, and I liked, um, I liked that one because, again, there's a, it, it's another potential end. Yes. Now this for, really is an ending for Batman yeah. and Bruce. Yes, you know this one is this one is a, is an ending in the shape of a bomb hidden in Batman's you know armor or costume that he uh, takes himself and Talia and the Lazarus Pit along with him. Well, in rereading it now, you know what this sort of reminded me of. I didn't actually read the story, but I do know that in that death of Damian Wayne story, it really was war between Batman and Talia. And what got me to thinking was, you know what? I didn't read that story, but it's hard to argue that this maybe this this Batman annual right here maybe was the first Batman versus Talia all-out war type of story that right. there ever was. I don't remember one before this point. I could be wrong, but I don't remember it. So whatever you think that's worth. Another kind of interesting part of this uh, of this Detective Comics annual, though, number four, is I wouldn't have been able to put it in words at the time because, again, I was a stupid 10-year-old kid, and there was an entire perspective of comics history, and especially Batman history, that I just did not have at the time. But looking at it now, this is not the end of the post-crisis Batman that we're reading here. This is the end of the very... Specifically, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, early 1970s Bronze Age Batman that we're reading the ending of here. And I I don't know why, but this story... Again, is this the greatest Batman story there's ever been? Well, obviously not. But, my God, this this was amazing. This is an amazingly good story, in my opinion. This is... This is one of those things that, again, is this the way that I always thought that Batman would check out, or at least end, the story of Batman would end? No. And this storyline is actually part of why. I just cannot, I don't like the idea of Batman dying in the line of duty. That just doesn't scan for me for some reason, you know? But when it's done, hypothetically, as it was in The Dark Knight Returns, as it's done here and and other stories I'm kind of blanking on, it's it's very dramatic, very or uh, Earth Two, of course. It's just really powerful, very dramatic storyline, and I just I really really enjoy it. So now, one of my very first appearances over here on the Trentus Magnus Punches Reality Podcast was we were talking about some imaginary stories. Mm-hmm. 
or uh, Elseworlds. And I think to some extent I can you know put these these uh, these Armageddon stories sort of in that category. I agree. And again, I have I have no problem with telling you know with them telling that type of story or potential future stories. I I don't consider that a cheat. You know, if if they're upfront about it. Well, so I like I, I like these really two different takes on the end of Batman. Well, and one of the things that sort of since we're on the subject, one of the things that sort of works for me about this is that this is a potential future. You know, it's a potential right. future. Right. You know, this is this is as canon as you want it to be. If you want this to be the last Batman story, then damn it, this is canon in as much as it's a potential future. It's on the table. And, and, and in story, they were honest about that. That's, that's what Wave Rider was doing. He was showing potential futures. So there's nothing contradictory about that. That's, it's not a retcon to have to say, well, we just meant that as an imaginary story after the fact, or we just meant that as a potential future. No, we're told straight up, these are potential futures. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah, and there is a canonicity to it that, you know, if you just basically try not to focus too much on the word potential and instead on the word right. future. <laughs> this is in print. Right. This is on the table. You know, it's totally valid. And I don't know. I just – I feel like I'm beating it to death, but I just – I really like this <laughs> like this story. It's very Bronze Agey to me, and I just love – even Talia's hairstyle is uh, on a page oh, – Damn it, why don't they ever number these frickin' pages? Basically, they're at, <laughs> it's that moment where Batman's got the little cap, acid capsule in his mouth, and, you know, they're doing the whatevers with the Lazarus pit. And Talia has, you know, those serpentine earrings going, and this very 70s, like, Barbarella type of um, mm, right. hairstyle. And I think this was actually done on purpose. So, anyway. Right, to harken back to that specific early 70s. Batman, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, yeah agreed. So um, that's pretty much all I really had for this story because it's obviously it's you know this isn't really worth a an episode unto itself. But I can't let it. I, I can't just let something that was this pivotal and important to my childhood. I can't just let it go with just a couple of words. <laughs> I needed to run it into the ground. Damn it. So finally, at least for me, is Flash Annual Number Four. Now, this is auspicious for many reasons, not least of which being it's a potential end of uh, Wally West. Or not end of, but end of, end for <laughs> the Wally West Flash. But it's also auspicious in that this story was written by Mark Wade, And this is a pre-born-to-run Mark Wade who's writing this story. And the thing that kind of came off as a kick in the balls when I reread this story now was that... It is shocking how similar this, the Wally in this uh, alternate potential, maybe someday kind of sort of squint type of future, how similar that character is to where he ultimately ended up. That's interesting. Huh. So, you know, this didn't, this storyline didn't, in this comic didn't come to literal fulfillment right sure but it did kind of come i don't like spiritual fulfillment i don't know (laughs) right and the other thing though was that i was not 
a huge flash expert at the time. And so the idea of basically an issue that has this many they weren't actually rogues, but they kind of were rogues, but sort of, not really, you know. That was, like, the Rainbow Glider, for instance. This was my first exposure to a lot of those characters. And it was, I don't know, it just, it was a very, and it, and, and by the way, just to kind of interrupt my own thoughts, it is interesting <laughs> that the Flash ends up, She's and now I'm I'm actually sort of blanking on it, but uh, Bonnie uh, Bonnie was was she a news reporter like Linda Park or was she something else? Okay, well whatever. I don't want to derail everything, but anyway, uh, point is this was this was an amazingly good story, and it honestly it's one of those things that just you're not necessarily completely aware of uh until you reread it just how close this is to where wally ultimately ended up as a character you know uh he's married happily so i might add he's he has a family he has his own little house in the suburbs and he's staking out his claim on the american dream independently i love i just i love the fact that that is a common theme among the flashes you know the the flash families from jay and joan through barry and iris you know they seem to at least <laughs> they seem to at least have you know find you know find someone to settle down with seem to have have uh, have relationships i think that that's just a nice little continuity bit among the the flash family as it will as it were we we refer to uh uh you know, emily loves the flash family and refers to the garricks as the the grand flashes <laughs> you know the grandparents of the flash family well, and it's it, it's true. So, <laughs> I guess the reason this was such a revelation to me when I was a kid was a, I, I I didn't realize it at the time, but my I just read the first Flash story by my favorite Flash writer ever. The other thing though was that the Flash comic book, the monthly one that was coming out at the time, was so just not what I want from the Flash at all. It was kind of nice to be able to grab a comic. <laughs> And that had nothing to do with those sort of aggravating characters or this sort of context that I don't understand. It was very, I don't know, rookie friendly. You know, if you're like a rookie <laughs> uh, Flash right. fan, this is not a bad story to read at all. Especially that, like, given the, sac- the self-sacrificial quality that you know Wally exhibits at, at, at the end of the story, where he doesn't sacrifice his life. But in a way, he kind of does, because mm-hmm. of all characters in the DC universe, Wally wanted this, you know? And for him to turn his back on it so his son can take over and, and have his shot at the legacy, that's just really powerful. And it hit me as a kid how cool that, that, that could really be. Interesting. So. Right. It, 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 it is just it's so interesting that we can you know, read these comics as kids, read these stories as kids, these really disposable you know, stories as kids and get one thing out of them and read them, you know, as adults, as adults and really get something else out of them. Mm. You know, so the, the ones that are well-written. I agree. And, and and some of them really are. Well, and as to the other ones, uh, the other the other tie-in annuals, it's, you know, those are good. I'm not disrespecting those. I really enjoy the Superman annuals and stuff, but honestly, I, this is the sort of thing that it, it could go on and on and on. And um, you know what? Maybe someday it will, but at least for right now, I, I think I'm pretty much talked out. 
So, um, now, Professor, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? My home base is at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Trina said very nice things about it at the beginning of the show. All of which are true. I appreciate <laughs> That's at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And, uh, you know, we, as he said, our show started within a few weeks of each other. So I do consider us, I do consider us colleagues, um, which is good because you don't want to be a competitor of Trentus. Trentus does not have competitors. Trentus has former competitors. Yes, he does. So joining the team, being, 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 being part of the kingdom, being a vassal is fine by me. <laughs> well, and thank you again for joining me. And um, as I said, what I wanted for uh, this show was that we would be mature, you know, act like rational adults uh, <laughs> about this story. And um, I thank you for bringing that air of uh, uh, professionalism to it, you know, that you didn't just sit there and whine and complain. You you talked about the weak points, but you emphasized the positive ones. That was the entire reason I wanted you on this episode, and job well done, sir. Thank you very much. Now, for the rest of you, Extinction Level Event continues next week. I'm going to be joined by Michael Bailey talking about secret invasion but that's next week bye everybody you guys have a great rest of the week we are out It was the dawn of the Third Age of Comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. 
this is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-s-m-a-g-n-u-s-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentus magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>